This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today, I am pleased to welcome Indian-born, German-raised British author Andrea Wolfe, who for the past decade has researched and written about important stories in botany, horticulture, and the study of nature over the course of multiple books, including The Brother Gardeners, Botany, Empire, and the Birth of an Obsession, published in 2008, Founding Gardeners, The Revolutionary Generation, Nature, and the Shaping of the American Nation, published in 2011, and The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World, published in 2015. Miss Wolf is currently on a stateside tour for her newest book, The Invention of Nature, and she's joining us by phone this morning to talk with us about her own process of discovery over the course of her research. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So I'd really like to start, um, which is what I usually do, with where you started, how you came to an interest in plants, in gardening, and in what became um, or has become this wonderful exploration of your own about connections and patterns in this world of horticulture? Well, I kind of really came to it by accident. Um, I'm not a gardener at all. And um, I moved, so I was brought up in Germany, and uh, I moved to Britain in the mid-1990s. And I had I'd never really been interested in gardening in Germany. All my friends there were living in apartments. Um, no one was talking about gardening. It was really kind of more a, you know, occupation for pensioners, but not for someone in their early 20s. And uh, then I moved to London, and everybody seemed to think like a day digging in the flower beds the greatest entertainment. And um, I couldn't quite believe it that I would spend like evenings with my new English friends, and they're all talking about the horticultural successes of their vegetable plots and their flower beds. And so this is how I kind of started thinking about it a little bit. And then I um, studied design history at the Royal College of Art, which is really architectural history or the history of material culture. And I got very much interested, because I was interested in the 18th century, in the landscapes around the houses, because a lot of 18th century um, uh, aristocrats often started with their gardens and then they built the houses. So. Uh, I was interested in the in the kind of connection between the house and the outside, and um, and then at the same time I moved into one of those kind of little terraced houses in London, and uh, I was mainly interested in the house. I have to admit. And then after about a year renovating the house, I realized I have a little garden outside, which was looking rather awful by that stage. Um, so I I just started kind of like ripping out some weeds and then finding some plants and I didn't have a clue at all what it is so I started asking people and um, so I came slightly obsessed with it um, because everybody could give me like brilliant answers in England so I kind of started gardening on a very you know quite pathetic um, level I would say but at the same time I learned about these plants I also realized that a lot of these plant names were um, kind of really derived from the people who had discovered them, who had collected them. And because I'm a historian, I got interested in them. So it kind of went from there. So I started, you know, sitting in the library looking at, you know, these plant collectors and plant dictionaries. And I kind of found this amazing story, um, which then became the Brother Gardeners, um, 
which was uh, the American plant collector John Bartram, who lived in Philadelphia and mm-hmm. who from the early 1730s for about four decades sent these huge seed boxes over with American trees and shrubs from Philadelphia to London, completely transforming the English landscape garden. So that's how I started. And then um, I think ever since then, I've always been interested in the relationship between humankind and nature. So I don't just, I'm not just interested in gardens. I'm really, it's, it's more the kind of the environment and nature. So I personally really enjoyed the parallels between your process of discovering these stories and following the threads of the processes and stories unfolding in the lives of these historical figures. I see these parallels in the beginning of this work, which you describe in your introduction to the Brother Gardeners, some of which you've just recounted. The multicultural and multidisciplinary story of you as a design historian becoming fascinated with the stories behind plant names in your new garden, and then a mathematician giving you the plant encyclopedia that helps you begin learning to identify plants and names. And the stories sort of move organically from there, one to the other. All three of your titles we're discussing today have these strong thesis statements relating to the importance of nature, botany, agriculture, and horticulture on the development of entire cultures, European and American. Walk us through your process from one book to the next. So, In a weird way, the brother gardeners led to the founding gardener. John Bartram was one of the um, protagonists there. And then through Bartram, I really discovered this remarkable connection to the founding fathers because he was a very close friend of Benjamin Franklin. Um, but then as I read through Bartram's accounts and diaries and journals, I found, for example, an invoice to George Washington, who had ordered plants from Bartram's nursery for Mount Vernon. Thomas Jefferson had visited while he was writing the Declaration of Independence. So they kind of popped up. So, and then I was following John Bartram's footsteps um, through the Virginian mountains, and I, I kind of looked at my street map, and I realized that I'm literally passing um, Charlottesville and Monticello. So I thought, oh, I'll just have a look at the house of the writer of the Declaration of Independence. But when I went up to the mountaintop in Monticello, I just realized what a revolutionary gardener um, Jefferson was. But that was not a story I had been told at, in my history lessons at school. So I wanted to know more. more and I thought there are going to be like tons of books about the founding fathers as gardeners. And there weren't. Um, so I decided that I want to write this book because I think that we can't really look at the making of America without looking at the founding fathers as gardeners and as farmers because their passion for nature and agriculture is really deeply woven into the fabric of America. So they didn't just create America in a political sense, but they also understood the importance of agriculture and nature for the making of this nation. And that kind of works on several levels. There's Pretty much the most straightforward one is that is the economic level that good agricultural crops brought self-sufficiency and independence to this country and during the revolution. So they were very much aware of that. And then it also works on a kind of on a left, really on a level of kind of national identity because they um, they kind of invested the American landscape, the American wilderness, with patriotic sentiment. And it also worked um, kind of on an ideological level, which was really the Jeffersonian idea of that America should be an agrarian republic. And then it worked kind of 
symbolically in their gardens because they all use their gardens almost as a as a canvas to paint a patriotic statement. So they were planting very deliberately Native American species um, as a patriotic statement, which mm-hmm. was something really remarkable at that time because other American gardeners, if you were a wealthy American gardener you know, before the American Revolution, you'd try to emulate the English garden. You're trying to get as many European species into your garden. That were the kind of big status symbols. No American gardener at that time was interested in ornamental American species because they were basically almost like weed that, you know, what you could find outside your garden gate. You wouldn't really actually put that into your garden. But they do that. So Washington, it's one of my favorite stories, really. It's like Washington on the eve of the Battle of New York um, is, you know, he's the commander-in-chief. There are 30,000 British troops about to, you know, attack New York. And he sits down and he writes a letter to his estate manager in Mount Vernon asking him to rip out the garden and to plant a new garden um, entirely made of native um, species, which is really, I think, Washington's horticultural uh, declaration of independence. Um, so I, I suppose I'm interested in gardens really as a window into a world of science, culture, and politics. Um, and in a way, that then led me to write about Alexander von Humboldt, because Humboldt, strangely, um, when, so he went on this kind of big five-year um, exploration, exploration of Latin America, and on his return to Europe in 1804, he stops in Washington, and he meets Jefferson and Madison. And he comes back with this completely new idea of nature as a web of life, as a kind of of living organism. And he talks to Madison and Jefferson. And then Madison later, um, Madison is very much influenced by these ideas um, of kind of, it's really the idea of ecology, an ecosystem, without them using that term at all. And um, so... I wrote this long chapter about Humboldt meeting them for the Founding Gardeners and then completely went overboard and it didn't really have to do anything with the story. So in the edit, we decided to delete that chapter. Yeah. Um, and that, but I decided to kind of keep it aside and say, like, I would really, really want to write about um, Alexander von Humboldt because he's this extraordinary forgotten father of environmentalism. So it's, so it's, it's this kind of serendipity in a way how you or how I work, but it always is about the relationship between humankind and nature. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're joined by author Andrea Wolf. Her newest book, The Invention of Nature, reintroduces the world to acclaimed scientist and thinker Alexander von Humboldt. We'll be right back after the break. Stay with us.
Welcome back. Before the break, we began our conversation with Andrea Wolf, author of The Invention of Nature. We've been speaking about the scope of her work documenting the connection between nature and culture and the development of nations. Circling back to the founding gardeners, you paint some wonderful stories of just like what you just mentioned about Washington sitting down like in, in on the eve of a huge battle and writing about his garden. And then you um, uh, depict several narratives where, you know, Jefferson and Adams are are traveling in Europe and they're struggling with huge political conflicts and they go off to visit some gardens because they're just kind of done and they, they want to look at gardens and look at trees and yeah. it informs so much of what they do and it is it is this beautiful confluence of art, history, nature and, and politics all coming together and then when you get to the invention of nature, you you really actually sort of explode and and take up a whole notch. Your your thesis is from the two, the first two books, and you you find this kind of source and almost an origin point of of somebody from the Western world, um, Alexander von Humboldt being an incredibly important. Uh, German scientist, adventurer, researcher, thinker um, in the 18th century. And you really place him, which is your objective, you place him back in his rightful role as being uh, an inspirer for the thinkers and environmental um, scientists and writers and artists who came after him, including, you know, Darwin and John Muir. And I, I this the the web that you weave through these three books is um, is fascinating to me. And so talking about Humboldt, and if you're just joining us, we are speaking this morning with uh, Andrea Wolf, author of most recently The Invention of Nature, for which she's on a thirty five city tour in the United States uh, currently. So talk a, a more about the invention of nature. And the thesis, not only that he is sort of the father or fountain of what we now see as ecology and um, the web of life concept, but how what what he predicted in terms of how nature would influence culture and how culture, human culture, would impact nature. Well, I think the the amazing thing about Humboldt is that he he just can't be put in a little box. He was really uh, one of the greatest polymaths ever, and he was not a cerebral scholar. He was brazenly adventurous. So he really believed that a scientist had to, you know, they have to leave the lab, they have to leave the study, they have to go and explore. So he, as a young man in 1799, goes on this five-year exploration of Latin America, which really shapes his thinking and um, makes him really legendary across the world, and he comes back with these with these new ideas on nature um, as this kind of web of life. But he also sees how he doesn't just you know walk through the rainforest and is amazed. He also um, sees how um, the effect of um, plantations, for example, in Venezuela. So he walks through this kind of new world with very very open eyes and an open mind, and he realizes how humankind destroys nature. And um, he, for example, sees how 
um, forests have been felled, um, trees have been felled, how then the topsoil washes off, how um, farmers divert the water from lakes uh, to irrigate their fields, how then the water levels are falling. And he, seeing this destruction, he is the first to explain the fundamental functions of the forest for the ecosystem, for mm-hmm. example. So he talks about the tree's ability to store water and their protection against soil erosion. But he also notes things like how um, unchecked pearl fishing at the Venezuelan coast completely destroys oyster stocks. So he makes this connection between nature and humankind and sees that we are basically destroying our planet. And then in 1800, he predicts harmful human-induced climate change. And he can do that because he is really the first to see nature as a global force. So he doesn't... So he, you know, he's working at a time when other scientists are really... They're looking for universal laws. They are looking through the very narrow lens of classification. They're trying to order nature hierarchically. And there's this man, Humboldt, who suddenly looks at nature in terms of global vegetation and climate zones, which, of course, we take for granted today, but it was a really brand new concept at that time. And then, and I think for me that's also really, really important, is he's also someone who's, in a way, really the bridge between the Enlightenment and Romanticism, because mm-hmm. he's, on the one hand, he's obsessed with measurements, so he schleps 42 scientific instruments across Latin America. But at the same time, he says that we need to use our feeling and our imagination to understand nature. So he says poetry is as important as measurements for us to make sense of nature, which I think is something we have completely lost today. This kind of, you know, we have such a, we draw such a sharp line between the arts and the sciences. And it's this for me, it's really this, what he says, that nature, he says nature is in this mysterious communication with our inner feelings. And he is a scientist who is not afraid of lyricism, who's not afraid of using his feelings to explain that. And I think that's something that's really missing in today's um, environmental debates, for example, in the political arena. And it's, there are several, uh, I, I kept sort of coming back to several um, applications, I guess is the right word, between what you're writing about in each of these books and you make connections to how they are absolutely true today and you can see little glimmers of them in in certain uh, areas. So for instance, in Founding Gardeners, you talk about this this connection that the Founding Fathers made between self-sufficiency, pride of place, and uh, their economic and... um, and social independence, and the sort of slow food, homestead, you know, local uh, self-sufficiency movement of today in the United States, that it is, they they are the same impulse over, you know, connected by centuries. And then the same thing with Humboldt, and, you know, this Humboldtian perspective that you refer to and its applications today, like traveling through the United States as uh, a multicultural thinker that you are and being in our, you know, um, election year and see, like, what are some of the connections that, that come home for you? Well, um, well, let me, let me um, paddle 
back a little bit to the founding Ghanas because I think that it, that's what very much applies to um, today. Um, so I think we've, you know, for them, gardening was a very political act. And when I talk to gardeners today on these tours, for example, through America, um, I have the feeling that most gardeners are deeply invested in the environment because they're really working the soil. Mm-hmm. Yet, when I ask them, you know, do you think what you do is something political? They mostly say no. Um, but then, you, you know, I think gardening is still political because it empowers people in local community, which I think you can see in, you know, the rise of urban farming, for example, in the past decade, um, the kind of increasing interest in local produce. So, you know, if you grow your own vegetables, I think you are making a political statement. Yes. If you um, have your own compost pile, you don't need to use chemical fertilizer. So you are making a political statement. If you have an organic garden, you invite useful insects and you don't need to use harmful pesticides. That is a political statement. Yes. Um, so I think it is very political. It's just we've kind of forgotten to see it that way. And um, so in a way, I think things... So I've been traveling through the U.S. for about 10 years um, on these tours, and I'm seeing a big change, I have to say. Um, more and more, um, you know, garden clubs, for example, who used to more... To, you know, they wanted to have speakers talk about florist arrangement and, and you know, pruning roses and stuff like that. They have a bigger and bigger um, part of their lectures, which is actually about um, conservation issues, environmental issues. So they are, things are changing. They might be changing too slowly, but they are, you know, there is something happening. And one of the other things that I, I find amazing is as I'm reading your books to keep reminding myself that the web of information that the people you are writing about um, in the 17th and 18th centuries is really slow. Like they, you say, oh, they write letters and John Bartram ships a seed box and, you know, somebody else gets it and then they write back and they request this seed and they request that and, you know, the communication uh, and network uh, of horticulture and science for Humboldt and, you know, he travels to Latin America. All of these things took, you know, years and and it took a long time to get a letter somewhere or to get a seed box somewhere. And so the flow of information was slow but very constant and, and in this constant network. And now our flow of information is fast, super fast, but it our, our response and our change rate in some of these ways is still very slow. Well, I suppose there is, you know, there is something to be said about stuff happening sometimes a little bit slower because you actually have time to digest it a little bit more and to think about it rather than just to kind of react really quickly or mm. to just absorb it all without really thinking it through. So um, you know, it, I often get asked, you know, what would the founding fathers think about today or Humboldt about today? And I'm finding it very, very difficult to give that answer because we tend to, you know, put a halo around them or kind of mummify them into this kind of, you know, they wouldn't have changed. But, I mean, Jefferson, for example, at some stage said each generation should have the right to write themselves a new constitution. Um, Humboldt, for example, was, although he's so fascinated by nature, he's also absolutely um, fascinated by technology. So he's very, very keen to know everything about um, the telegraph. And he corresponds with Samuel Morse, for example, because 
you know, for Humboldt, it would have been absolutely fabulous to um, to experience the um, the the um, the telegraph cable which was laid through the Atlantic because he could have just called a scientist. He could have just sent um, a question to a scientist in, in, in America to get an answer immediately rather than, you know, writing a letter which took weeks to cross the Atlantic. So it's difficult to judge. I mean, you know, luckily I'm a historian, so I don't have to come up with um, solutions today. At the moment, I just think, <clears throat> excuse me, I just think that we really need to think about our, you know, problems like climate change much more holistically rather than just looking at it from a scientific perspective. It's something that um, we have to look at from, you know, artists have to be involved, poets have to be involved, scientists have to be involved. It's a, it's a project, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that is really applicable for all of us. And so final question, uh, has your research and uh, passion for Humboldt led you on a new thread that you're going to be exploring after your book tour? Well, this is, um, this is a question I get asked a lot, and it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a question that's quite painful at the moment, because um, I have no new book idea at the moment, um, which is good and bad at the same time. Uh, it's good because I have actually no time at all to sit down because I'm going to be on the road for about a year because the book, The Invention of Nature, is published in 21 countries. Right. Um, and if you, if you are not, you know, if you are not in a new book, you are actually still incredibly passionate about your last book. So if I would be writing a new book now, I wanted to, would want to talk about that. So it's good because I am really so, so determined to make Humboldt famous again because I think he deserves to be as known as Newton or Charles Darwin. He's so incredibly important. So I'm going to concentrate, I think, for the next year on Humboldt. And then hopefully, by the end of that, I will have come up with another idea. Well, all good, fertile soil needs to <laughs> needs to rest at some times. So exactly. uh, I am a big fan of your, your work. And I thank you very much for being with us. It's been an honor. Andrea Wolf, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Andrea Wolf is the author of multiple books exploring the ways nature, botany, and horticulture influence human culture and the development of nations, including The Brother Gardeners, Botany Empire and the Birth of an Empire, published in 2008, Founding Gardeners, The Revolutionary Generation, Nature and the Shaping of the American Nation, published in 2011, and The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World, published in 2015. Join us again next week as the conversations continue with Matthew Shepard of the Xerces Society, a national nonprofit organization based in Portland, Oregon, and working to protect our invertebrate species worldwide. Butterflies and moths are perhaps the most well-known and well-loved of the invertebrates that are allies in our gardens. And the Xerces Society has a new book out on gardening for butterflies and moths. Join us next Thursday to learn more. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schiltz. Audio archives and podcasts for today's program can be found at mynspr.org. More information, including many photos, are available at JewelGarden.com. Join us daily at Cultivating Place on Instagram or Facebook. 
Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.